0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is Jessica Zhu. I am Assistant Professor of Religion at University of Southern California at Donsife and the New Books Network host in Buddhist Studies. Today, we are very lucky to have Professor Mercedes Valmisa from Gettysburg College to talk with us about her new book, Adapting a Chinese Philosophy of Action. It's published by Oxford University Press in 2021. So welcome Mercedes, thank you so much for writing this amazing book. It's a totally different take on Chinese philosophy. It's full of insights and surprises. And I still remember old days in the seminar that you organized that totally changed the way I think about received Chinese text. But in reading your book, I again find many more fresh insights, especially ways of understanding agency without ontological presumption of a unitary agent. It's just mind-bending. So I hope the listeners will find similar moments in your interview. And maybe this will encourage more listeners to pick up this book and start reading it. So, Mercedes, I'd like to start our interview with the traditional New Books Network question. Could you please tell us a little bit more about yourself, how you came to study ancient Chinese philosophy, especially what makes you think about Chinese thought from the perspective of philosophy of action? And one, how did you find out about that your book is actually about adapting?
1: Mm -hmm. Hi, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so my path into Chinese philosophy is a bit unusual. I studied philosophy in college in Sevilla, which is my hometown in southern Spain. And after graduating from college and working for a bit, I moved to China, kind of out of the view, because I wanted to explore a completely different culture, different society, a different language out of the European and the spheres, right? And I didn't know anything about China at the time. So I started studying studying Mandarin, uh, just to get around in Beijing. And then I also started reading texts like the Zhuangzi and the Dao De Jin. Um, What I can say is that I fell in love with all of this, right? So after a while, I decided to go back to school. And I got a scholarship to do my master's in Chinese philosophy at National Taiwan University at Tai Da. And uh, it was there where I first realized that adapting was a common thread. Across all philosophical texts in the classical period, that it was a major preoccupation and also an extraordinary way of looking at how we act along with others. One that, like you said, is an individualistic, that isn't unitary, but rather collective and distributive, and yet it is highly efficacious. And I still remember vividly that I was sitting in a class at Taida, it was a class about the Bandi gene which is this group of manuscripts from Mawandui. Uh, and um, the professor, Professor Wan Seogal, was teaching it. He used he mostly Thai, right, Taiwanese, to teach this class. So I had no clue what he was talking about most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, I was sitting there reading this text, and he was thinking about those texts in the Huan Di Se Jin that I first came up with the notion of adapting. I was just so fascinated with it, and I couldn't stop thinking about it and talking about it. So I made adapting the topic of my PhD dissertation at Princeton, and it's during those years, writing my dissertation, that I came to think of Chinese philosophy, mainly through the
0: lenses of agency and philosophy of action. Thank you so much. I fully sympathize that. Thai is a different language, um, but your book contains an introduction and six chapters. I'd like to start our interview with your introduction. Here you outline the theoretical frameworks that is central to your analysis in the ensuing chapters. Key among them are the centrality of interconnectedness, relationality, adaptive agency, and of course the co- coaction paradigm. And we will have plenty of opportunity to explain each framework when discussing the chapters in turn. Here, I'm most intrigued by your methodology. On page 8, for example, you mentioned that here I just quote, I reject notions of authors' book, and schools of thought as a, as a priori legitimate hermeneutical principles for the early period. Unquote. And instead, what you do is that, here I quote again, you philosophize at the level of the unit of argument. And for you, the units of coherent meaning and arguments do not need to extend to an entire book compilation. They do not even need to extend to a complete chapter of the transmitted book. So the unit of argument may go as long as a chapter or as short as a passage or extend through several passages, unquote this method is revolutionary to me. Could you please explain to the listeners how and why you started to treat this ancient and transmitted text in this way, and what's the advantages and disadvantages of your method?
1: Yeah, sure. So when I was doing my master's at Taida, I didn't have any previous formal training in Chinese philosophy, which was an enormous disadvantage, as you can imagine, because all my classmates could kind of recite the classics by heart. But it also proved to be a wonderful advantage at the same time because I wasn't tied up to any traditional readings of the texts. And therefore, I also couldn't be very loyal, right, to how we are supposed to classify the text into schools of thought or to respect the boundaries, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, I was taught this traditional way of approaching philosophy at Taida, but it kind of, it didn't carry a lot of weight for me, Right. So I wasn't carrying the weight of the tradition and I definitely wasn't carrying the weight of any particular academic culture or academic norms since I was new in Taiwan and I was also challenging the European ones that I had inherited. So this is kind of the same as saying that I was very ignorant at the moment, but I think that this ignorance helped me see things that those with a lot of knowledge couldn't see because their preconceived notions prevented them from seeing them, right, if that makes sense. Um, I think that's a very strongest thing to say, no? Uh, But what happened is that then when I joined, for instance, East Asian Studies Department uh, for my PhD, All that I learned there about pre-imperial textual culture, about material culture, you know, by means of the study of excavated manuscripts and artifacts, all that reinforced my intuition that I didn't need to abide by classifications that didn't really exist until much later, until a later period. So that was the final push that I needed to break with the author, book, and school model of exegesis. But mostly because I couldn't have reconstructed adapting in the way that I wanted to had I been forced to abide by those traditional classifications uh, in terms of Taoism, Confucianism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, When it comes to advantages and disadvantages, um, I think that's a question of affordances, right? Because any methodology is going to allow you to do something and it's going to prevent you from doing something else. And I think my method is fantastic for doing fresh things with the materials, to establish new connections, to come to new interpretations, to see concepts in a new light. And even to ask new questions that the top-down or the uh, so-called tree model of exegesis doesn't encourage or allow you to do, like my question about effective action. Um, So it allows a great deal of freedom and even a sort of promiscuity in working with lots of different texts without committing to any preconceptions about them. But I think you also need to have a certain level of detachment from tradition and maybe even some disregard for authority uh, in order to stomach this method. But then what this method does poorly is offering systematic and coherent interpretations of particular texts and individual philosophers. So for example when I teach my seminar in classical Chinese philosophy I go with the traditional way of teaching text by text and I present the text as authored by the philosophers that give them name right because it helps my students understand the material and remember the material. It's just simpler and that simplicity is a good thing for teaching intro classes I think. So to me, there is nothing wrong uh, with either method. The way I see it, I'm an apurealist. Uh, so I think different approaches and methodologies can be used and should be used for different purposes, as long as we are straight about what we are doing and um, we are aware that these methods are never neutral, that they actually have agency, and that they coact with us.
0: Awesome! Thank you so much for this amazing analysis of coaction paradigm about method and for the kind of takedown of the so called absolute object- objective method. Um, so I would see your approach as an invitation to see the text from a beginner's mind. What happens if we get detached from the traditional classifications? What happens if we put aside the question of authorship for a moment? So, thank you so much for, invite, for this invitation and for doing such an amazing book after this invitation. So, chapter one What is adaptive agency? interviews a wide range of passages to show that mainstream Chinese philosophers were largely uninterested in speculating universal principles or fixed standards. Instead, what drove their philosophical inquiry is the radical question of, here I quote, how to act, and their answers make up a rich array of what you term as adaptive agency. So this philosophical commitment to adapting your term is Uh, you term it as a meta model of action. Working under this paradigm, Chinese philosophers theorize what is adaptive ability, how to train and attune to adaptability. Uh, One way to train this adaptive agency seems to be the paradigm of gan yin, stimulus and response um, on page 31. So please please tell us more about this whole new world that you call adaptive agency and how Chinese philosophers want us to train our own adaptive agency in a constantly changing world.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, What what I'm calling the co-action paradigm is my way to represent the classical Chinese uh, account of agency. Um, The co-action paradigm has three games. The first game is that all actions are co-acted along with others. So there is no such thing as an individual action. If you want to think about any of the ordinary actions that you undertake during a day, Uh, from walking or cooking, reading a book, texting on your phone, anything that you do, none of these actions is individual in the sense that you aren't the sole actor of your actions. Rather, we should say that you're participating in a process along with other actors that collectively gives rise to what you take to be your own doing. But there is actually a great variety of others participating in your agency. And these others are both human and non human And that's the second claim in the co-action paradigm. The claim is that things also act. Uh, Because here, agency, rather than something that we have, something that we own, a capacity that we own, is a process that is distributed across a network of of actors. It's a process in which both humans and non-humans, so things, uh, are also involved. Uh, We're always being acted upon by things as much as we are acting with things and acting on things, right? So then on these premises, the coaction paradigm advances the normative claim that in order to act effectively, because for classical Chinese philosophers, agency is all about efficacy, uh, the way I see it. And so in order to act effectively, intentional agents such as humans must adapt to the disposition, behavior, and affordances of the things that they're co-acting with in any given situation. So in this book in Adapting, I focused on this normative claim, right? I reconstructed what I think is an extraordinary philosophy of action that we don't find anywhere else. It's a philosophy of action that responds precisely to this challenge uh, emerging from the relational and collective character of agency. If our actions aren't purely ours, if we're always intertwined, impacted by a variety of others, if our agency is distributive, shared, dependent, contingent, then how can we act with efficacy? How can we have any sort of control over goals, means, and outcomes, right? That's the question that I answer in this book. And uh, to put it briefly, adapting is to design your actions, taking into account all the others that are participating in them, using the agentive power of the things that we are co-acting with and letting these be other humans, but also landscapes and geographical accidents, objects, tools, ideologies, beliefs, really everything and anything that is available at the moment. The result of this is co-raising courses of action that I am calling ad hoc, right? Because they are unique and temporary responses to specific non-permanent and non-generalizable situations and also life problems. Now, when I say that adapting is not a model of action, but rather a meta-model, what I mean is that there is no single way to act adaptively what shapes an adaptive action, is not its content, uh, what is done in the action, or its goal, the why, the reason why it's done, but it's the procedure, right? The how, the means by which the action is planned, and that's called the SOI. So this implies that all sorts of action can be adaptive as long as they are planned ad hoc, along with the agency of things. Um, And then talking about how to do it, right, and how to train, I think there were different ways of training in adaptive agency in classical China, but definitely the most pervasive and the most important one was through discussion in teacher-student settings. So you have texts like the Hanfei Feizi or the Analects or the Lu shih chun uh, which present anecdotes showing how people in the past reacted to certain situations, how they dealt with certain problems. And the goal of discussing these anecdotes is not to memorize what the actor in the past did, nor to repeat the exact course of action. The goal is for the student to learn to identify relevant information from any given situation in order to produce their own unique responses in their own life. So this was a way of educating in adaptive responsivity. And this is something that we all can do. Uh, It's something that certainly I do with my daughter at home uh, because I want her to learn to acknowledge, uh, to utilize everything that is relevant, a relevant participant in her agency, right? In any given moment. Because I think that becoming more aware of others leads also to becoming more self-aware. And that's also related to being more efficacious, more responsible, more ethical, and I I would say
0: even happier. Thank you so much. So your theory, your reading of these ancient philosophers, totally, I think totally just like dismantled the stereotype of Chinese philosophy or Chinese education is about road memorization, is about collectivity, but your coaction paradigm, the meta model of coaction paradigms, taking into account both the collective um, aspect and also distributive aspect, but also the particular, I don't know, trees, properties, um, differences, right, of individual objects, things, people and everything together. So you have to, the only so the only way of getting attuned to these adaptive agents is actually to see what people act in and then try to reinvent your own. But thank you so much for dismantling that stereotype of Chinese philosophy um that's so prevalent in popular culture. I don't think scholars fall you know, for for that kind of a myth anymore, but in popular culture, right, that's a totally different game. So let's segue into chapter two, locating adaptive agency. This is a very philologically dense chapter. Here you provide readers a wide range of Chinese terms that convey different senses of adapting and chief among them are the words like in tongue bien, shun, sui, xun, and quite a few others that I can't remember. Um, But the complexity here lies in the fact that all these terms, right? (laughs) Chinese, classical Chinese, right? It can mean different things other than adapting. So you gave us quite a few cases where these terms were used not as adapting, but to convey sense of uh, flexibility, relying, conforming, balancing, and spontaneity. So could you please, for the benefits of the listeners, um, to explain a little bit more on how you deal with these philosophical, uh, philological and conceptual complexities and what are the main devices you use to identify thematic and conceptual patterns related to the philosophy of, of adapting.
1: Mm, so what happened here, why I needed this uh, philologically dense chapter, right? is that adapting was something that uh, I had to find and that I had to reconstruct. It wasn't out there just for me to take. I had to carve it out of the tree, so to speak. So it wasn't so obvious like studying notions like the Tao or Ren Yi or Zhi knowledge, right? It was a very long and arduous archaeological task really to bring it to light. Um, My focus was on isolating features unique to adapting, uh, also on disambiguating the terms and distinguishing adapting from other forms of acting that are also discussed in the early texts or in the academic literature, right? Like, for example, Zeran and spontaneity, for example. Um, So I was very focused on giving this hard evidence, this sort of philological evidence, and in making distinctions. And you know also that I worked with so many different types of texts, right? From divination manuals uh, to histories, the military literature and philosophical essays. And I had to find consistencies in the use of adapting across all of them, And I also had to find differences with the uses of these other related terms and concepts so that I knew that I was really after something real, that I wasn't making it up. (laughs) Um, uh, But it's also interesting that this philological work uh, is what sedimented definitely my methodology. Um, It was what proved, at least to myself, that I was right in pursuing, adapting across this huge range of texts of all kinds of genres, of all kinds of intellectual affiliations, because I was able to find enough consistency in the textual behavior of the constellation of terms associated with adapting, and and also in the semantic fields uh, of these terms. I know that most philosophers wouldn't need this kind of so-called hard evidence to pursue their concepts. But like I said, I was in the task of reconstruction. Um, of course, reconstruction is also, it's always creative, right? But it's reconstruction nonetheless, uh, not pure invention. And uh, so my mentality at the time was to prove that I had found something new in classical Chinese philosophy, that there was this amazing philosophy of action that for all of us to enjoy, right? And which we hadn't been
0: able to see before. Thank you so much, Mercedes. Yes, I honestly, after reading this chapter, I'm convinced there are those patterns. There are probably more other kinds of patterns waiting for other interesting scholars to dive in. So that's why I say your book is an invitation. So let's segue into Chapter 3, Strategy and Control. It takes us on a deeper dive into Chinese military literature. I think most readers will be familiar with Sun Tzu's um, The Art of War. We know it's been taught in the West Point in the early 20th century, but your approach to those sorts of texts is very unique. What's most surprising for me is the idea that being adaptive actually allows you to control the situations according to this text. So for example, on page 95, you conclude this chapter with this sentence. Here I just quote, agency concerns control and efficacious models of agency will be those that allow agents to achieve their goals by taking control of actions, means, tools, and processes. "Unquote." This is honestly very anti-intuitive. My common sense tells me that adapting means to let go of control. Could you please explain for our listeners why, in this military text, the writers actually claim adapting enables control? How so? Yeah,
1: this is counterintuitive uh, absolutely uh, but I think that this is also one of the most crucial points in this philosophy of action and so I'm very glad that, for that question adapting definitely means letting go of control but what kind of control are we letting go of right that's the key we let, we let go of the illusion of individualism the delusion that we are fully independent and autonomous agents who can do things for and by ourselves. Um, because we're always acted upon by others, right? And these other participate in our actions, enabling and constraining us in equal measure, directing and organizing what we can do and even what we want to do. So thinking of human agency as an individual or independent activity is completely misguided. Classical Chinese philosophers tell us that individualism leads uh, to clumsy and ineffective courses of action, when not to conflict to chaos and harm for everyone. Uh, But counterintuitively, as I also wrote in a recent essay for Aeon, it's in the act of acknowledging that we aren't in full control of our actions, that we gain more control over their outcomes, because we are joining forces with all the conditions that shape our actions, our agency, rather than ignoring them or going against them. And, um, and here I want to remark that adapting, this joining forces with things, is not a conformist or a passive way of being in the world. It's not like just accepting conditions, letting the status quo be, and um, because that's a very common misunderstanding. Uh, the counterintuitive idea here is that acknowledging what things do. And working with them instead of against them is the only way in which we can actually channel things towards our benefit and gain some control over them. Like, for example, in ancient mythology, you have this figure of Tai, the great Yu, uh, because there was that uh, this terrible flood going on at the time. And many other people had attempted to control the flood by making dikes and by forcefully blocking the way of water. But that simply ignored the behavior of water, and it didn't work. So here comes the Great Yu. Uh, he didn't try to stop the water, and instead, he simple he simply channeled the water towards places where it would be beneficial instead of harmful. Right. So in this way, uh, the Great Yu becomes a paradigm of adapting because he coacted with the disposition and the behavior of water in order to control it, and he succeeded. Right. Um, and I said that this is one of the most crucial points in my work on adapting, because it has very important political implications, I believe. Uh, adapting isn't just a question of personal efficacy, it's also a question of social and collective efficacy. Letting go of that illusion of individualist control, I think that can give us a greater imaginative scope to create more effective, uh, more just uh, social structures and policies, also to more justly attribute responsibility and to design social systems that offer more equitable and inclusive paths for the future. But to do that, we just can't keep ignoring these others that influence, shape, enable, and constrain our actions. Uh, So my way to look at this, this is like the Daudigean's law of reversal, right? It's precisely by recognizing our contingency, our dependency, our lack of autonomy, that we can become autonomous in a more genuine way in this uh, interwoven relational
0: way. Thank you, Mercedes. This is (laughs) mind-blowing. I really appreciate, especially when you um, try to make this theory of uh, philosophy agency coaction paradigm speak to the contemporary situations. And I think you are, I just totally, I want to prime for listeners, the key of your argument, which I totally agree, is that agency and control um, is a complicated relationship. So it's a matter of um, admitting that we are not individuals is, is kind of letting go of a certain kind of control, of total control that we actually don't have. Okay. So once you let go of that kind of individualistic egoistic conceit, what happens is that you gain freedom, freedom to adapt, freedom to choose to join forces with who, um, whatever you deem beneficial, effective. And then that's also have, I agree that contemporary social political kind of uh, um, implications because um, in the western society in the global north our reigning paradigm is still individual rights and we still see society as constraints we have to build contracts we have to protect the individual freedom but what happens if we consider the social political problem from the philosophy agency that excavated, reconstructed by EO. So this is an invitation for any listeners to think about this further and pick up the book if you're interested in how this whole thing about um, letting go of your individualism gives you more freedom. Adaptive agency is the way to build collective um, um, society. All right, so uh, that's enough. For now of chapter three. Chapter 4, the reifying pattern. Here we explore the notion of limits of the efficacy of human agency, especially with the problem of Ming, commonly translated as fate. I find this chapter fascinating because it illustrates how some early Chinese philosophers understand the person or self and the word about things within human control and outside human control. So please tell us why um, why you see Ming as a reifying pattern, which you mentioned on page 96, the reified object of fate. You also called it an external objective heteronormous determining reality that confronted and limited a subject without accepting intercommunication with humans. Unquote. So could you please explain to the readers and listeners your choice of understanding Ming and your evidence to support this reading of Ming as reifying pattern, including passages that showcase the processes of this reification, for example, objectification, externalization, disengagement, and alienation. Thank you.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Uh, The way in which I chose to tell the story of adapting in this book is by first looking at adapting as a strategy for acting along with things in situations where there is a reasonable level of control, right? Um, So by, by that reasonable level of control, I mean any ordinary situation where you encounter contingencies coming from other agents and of which may not be possible to fully anticipate, but which still allow you to adjust to them, to collaborate with them in rechanneling their influence towards the goals that you have acquired at a given moment. So it's to gain control precisely by acknowledging all the conditions that constitute your agency, like we just said, right? And I explore that with the military uh, literature. But then there seemed to be a lot of people in classical China, um, not only philosophers, but all kinds of ordinary people and practitioners who thought that there's a lot in life that completely escapes human control, right? From our physical and mental features to social conditions, such as whether we are born poor or rich or whether we, de- we get lucky and encounter opportunities to move our lives towards certain desirable paths, et cetera, et cetera. So all these things that can be brought about uh, nor avoided by human effort and by human agency, everything that escapes human control, that's the realm of Min, right? That's what they called Min. And I think fate is a really good translation of Min Uh, fate in the sense of the Latin fatum, uh, because fatum refers to one's lot, to what's fated to happen, to one's allotted lifespan, and all those are meanings of min in the early Chinese literature. But then fatum also refers in a more abstract way to an external force that shapes events and influences or even determines outcomes, just like min. So when I say that mean uh, fate uh, became reified or that there was this pattern of reification that we can see across a range of texts, both received and excavated or found, I mean that many thinkers saw fate as an external thing that opposed the subject, uh, opposed the subject in the strong sense of presenting resistance and defying the subject. And this opposition imposed limits on the subject, on the agent, on the person, and these limits were often viewed as negative, as detrimental to the person's goals and aims. And also, there was no possibility. So the way these texts talk about men, about faith, there was no possibility of communication with it. Uh, there was no peace, not intersubjectivity, and no even possibility of interpretation of understanding. Um, which is very different from what happened with the spirits and the gods, or even with nature, right? Which is a two-way channel communication. Uh, but fate allowed no transactions with humans. It remained completely opaque, completely unscrutable. Uh, so that's a feature of objectification that I talk about, right? It's a, this object that cannot be understood, like this alien. Um, and then fate was viewed as existing independent from humans. It was hypothesized as a fact of nature, as existing independent from nature, uh, from humans, sorry. Uh, So that's the feature of externalization, right? And then finally, as a result of this objectification and externalization, people felt powerless and alienated by fate because there seemed to be nothing that they could do against it to manage it, except for just stoically accepting its charge. and I discuss all these mainly through case studies of dementias and then a manuscript called uh, Tang Yujita, which is from Guodian. Uh, but there are many more relevant sources that support this reading. Uh, the way I see it, it was a truly a, a prominent pattern of thinking about fate and one that generated lots of anxiety and lots of different philosophical questions, which mobilized lots of ingenuity, too, to cope with and overcome the sense of despondency and existential
0: incompetence
1: that it created. So it was very fruitful and generative for philosophy
0: too. Thank you so much. So this is a, such a, a kind of a rich chapter. Um, it's also surprising because your whole book is about adapting, but here you basically set the limits, saying that there are actually certain things that adapt doesn't really help because it's uh reified, because um it's something beyond human control. And that's actually enriches the discussion of how to adapt. What's the point of it adapt? So chapter five, that segue nicely to chapter five, right? Coping with uncertainty. That continues discussions about the fate, but focus on now how early philosophers cope with this objective fate that is often mysterious, cannot be interpreted, cannot be tackled or faced and must be weighted and accepted. I'd like to point out that the problem of how to deal with things out of our control is not limited to ancient China we all have such problems throughout history. It's just like shapes, the forms, the particular content is different. But so, you know, learning about ancient China, right, their solutions, their coping strategies, including divination, astrology, right, is still popular today in our secular world, could be still relevant for us, um, the modern. Um, citizens, so could you please map out for the listeners what are some of the coping strategies and how adaptive agency is theorized and employed in these cases?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'd say that the most well-known form of coping with uncertainty is divination, right? Uh, Hematology in particular was very popular in classical China and still is to this day. So, hemorrhology is calendars that tell you when it's a good time to do things like getting married or eating certain foods, uh, all in conformity with the systems, with natural cycles. Uh, so, this is sort of an ecological model of action that helps make predictions, helps regulate our behavior, mediate risk, and also diminish uncertainty with respect to the future. And uh, apart from hemorrhology, there are, of course, other types of divination like Yarrow yeah, stocks, uh, which is the aging, right? And also dream divination, physiognomy, and so on. Uh, but all these mantic methods all have in common that they rely on some kind of external technology uh, that offers uh, ready-made solutions, we can say, the promise of reliable paths for deciding future courses of action. So people don't so much make decisions for themselves, but rather rely on these technologies to organize their lives and produce that sense of uncertainty and powerlessness that we have, right? Um, but then, in contrast with these semantic methods that I discuss in the chapter, then I also present what I call philosophical responses to deal with the lashes of fortune. Which um, these philosophical responses they didn't rely on any external technology, but rather. Uh, They relied on the person's own work of rationalization, explanation, uh, the person's way of interpreting reality and how things hang together in a way that is conducive to supply some type of agential competence. And then, so I place adapting among these other philosophical proposals to deal with everything that is out of our control. And so here, uh, I, I focus my discussion on chapter six of the Chuanzu, uh, particularly in what's come to be known as death dialogues. In these dialogues, we find a group of friends who are joyful, they're carefree, and then suddenly one of them falls ill with a, something like a tumor and experiences this terrible physical transformation. His body becomes all messed up, all deformed. Uh, but what counts here is his reaction that I find absolutely charming. He says... Well, wow, why would I resent any of these changes? If my left arm were to be transformed into a rooster, I would use it to keep watch on the night. And if my right arm were to be transformed into a slingshot, then I'd use it to shoot down an owl and to roast it for dinner, right? So <laughs> the Chuan here is arguing that all conditions, all states of being are equal in that they all come with a set of possibilities and limitations. The possibilities and limitations are different, but the fact that they do have possibilities and limitations, that's what make everything equal. Uh, So if we think about things in this way, what damages us is not, say, for example, to lose a foot or to be deformed, physically deformed in some way, but rather the social judgments that we have internalized and that deem this physical transformation and negative loss as opposed to a new opportunity, for example. So we are encouraged here to shake our cognitive and axiological capacities out of their standardized shape. And as a result of this detachment from conventional standards, then we can adapt to the sowness of each thing, which is the expression in Ziran. So to adapt to their features, the tendencies, the behavior of each thing without adding any preconceived judgments to them, Uh, these shape-based judgments, right? That the Chancellor talks so much about. Um, So I think like the point here is that everything that happens, even those things that are completely out of our control and that we typically see as negative and as detrimental, we can join forces with them and see them as an opportunity for new becomings. So here we see again that far from passive acceptance of a status quo, adapting opens the door towards an open-minded, flexible, creative transformation of negative relations into positive relations. And that's again, a form of taking control. But it's a form of taking control that doesn't attempt this control by ignoring or subjugating things, but rather by engaging and fully embracing the power of things.
0: Thank you so much. So, for me, the liberating insight from this chapter is just really that even given the fact that there are fate, there are to- things totally out of our control, we still have this adaptive freedom to choose to let go of certain internalized social conventions and to retell ourselves um, what it means to be a person. You know, we don't really just have to have one head, two, you know, two arms and two legs, right? <laughs> Being human is not fixating on certain, certain shape. And that opens up many, many more opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise see. So it's a change of mindset in terms of um, adapting. It's definitely not like ah, feeling dejected. It's just a transformation from suffering, unbeatable fate into, you know, you can choose to be happy, even under those circumstances. So thank you so much for this amazing chapter. So Finally is chapter six, the last chapter. The unifying pattern. It articulates a different but fascinating paradigm of understanding the self and the world, where adaptive agency plays a crucial role, where the problem of fate falls outside the sphere of concern, where the duality of subject-object dissolves, and where one can become adaptive agent by, here I quote, that's on page 149, by modeling on the Tao and the non-dual relationship between person and world that the Tao reveals. So this chapter reads to me very Buddhist because you know I do Buddhist studies. But the primary texts um, that you use, such as Huainanzi, is definitely pre-Buddhist. So please tell us, tell the listeners, these uninformed listeners like me, tell us more about this fun philosophy of non-dual provision, uh, joy, play, and a totally different view of what it means to be free.
1: Sure, uh, and I agree. It's true that this chapter has this Buddhist vibe, and um, I might have been influenced by Buddhism in my reading of the finance, for sure. But whatever the case, I do think it's still like a legitimate, a fruitful reading uh, of this text, and um, one that finds support in even earlier texts too, like the Tao Te Ching, where the Tao very clearly has that non-dual aspect too, right? Uh, so here I present. A different pattern of understanding the relationship between subject and object, internal and external, individual and collective, uh, one that is completely unified, which doesn't allow for, for these distinctions to take place or which doesn't allow for objectification, externalization and alienation to take place. So instead of thinking of those things that happen to us and that we can't control, those conditions that we call fate, instead of thinking of them as an external limit to our agency, we think of them as part of ourselves, much as our bodies and the air we breathe and the food that we ingest, it's all pervading, it's all enabling, enabling different things in different ways, that's for sure. But if you're free from conventional judgments and open to experiment and play, then everything becomes an opportunity for exercising our agency and our new becomings. As we said with the friends of the Death Dialogues in the Transit. Um, so we can reclaim any condition as part of our self realization. There is no separation between the world and the person anymore, right? This is what the finance authors claim when they say things like, I am the world, and the world is myself, right? There is uh, That, I think, is the core of agency being a collective phenomenon. Uh, all entities are continuously affecting each other. They're continuously being contingent, dependent on each other, and also constituting each other by means of relations and interactions that come in, right, that we, you mentioned before. Um, So this leads to a series of counterintuitive uh, or seemingly contradictory notions too. Uh, Apart from achieving control by letting go, right? That achieving control by letting go of individualistic forms of control, we also have now a sense of joy. Uh, That doesn't mean the fleeting sense of satisfaction in the encounter of socially prescribed pleasures but the very capacity of the person to reassign value, to reappropriate all and any condition, the capacity to enjoy all states of being. And that's a desirable thing, right? But because that means you can be joyful always under any conditions. But I think this is not very easy to achieve, unfortunately. Like I'm certainly certainly not there yet, but I I, I do work on it. And I use things uh, that happen in my life to work toward getting closer to, to that ideal of a uh, true joy, as the Hawaiian puts it. Um, and then we have a sense of play. Um, so think about it, if all conditions, all events, things, everything is part of you, then they aren't an external limitation, right? Or an external constraint, but rather they're just conditions of possibility for your agency and for your enjoyment. Uh, if that's so, then the world becomes sort of a self enabling playground. Um, and to play like this, this sense of play uh, that is developed in the Quainante, uh chapter one, Yuenta, Ta, um, it's very similar to what Maria Lugones said about play, right? That play is to be open, about, uh, open to self-construction. It's not to have any preconceived ideas about what things, including yourself, uh, should be. It's adapting to what is timely, possible, appropriate, and desirable, in a given moment, and also being open to all of this shifting and changing in any given moment too, right? In just a second. Uh, so joyful playing requires non-attachment, and uh, I think that's a great insight too to bring into our lives um, in any kind of ordinary situation. And also this sense of playfulness leads to uh, freedom that you said that is very different, a different conception of freedom that also seems quite a contradictory. Uh, Because it's a freedom constituted by non-freedom, right? By everything that lies beyond my possibility of control, uh, by conscious effort, everything that cannot be avoided. It's the freedom of a self that is constituted by non-self, right? By all these others in the world. it's, It's an expanded view of the self beyond just the person. And it's the freedom of an agent whose actions are not purely her own, since we have said that agency is collective, uh, it's a collectively emergent phenomenon. Uh, so to, to illustrate all this here, I love the image that we find in both the finance and the chance that says, if the world were a cage, then no birds would ever be lost, right? So think about the image of the cage. Like any other boundary or any wall, the cage divides space into inside and outside. And those inside the cage are considered to be limited and conditioned and free in a way that those outside the cage are not, right? Because outside the cage, they have free range of movement and other liberties. But in the unifying view, the entire world is the cage. So your unfreedom is also your freedom. Your own freedom is the things that you can't choose. Your body with all its amazing capacities, but also its limitations, its illnesses, its transformations. Um, It's your place of birth and the family that raised you. It's your native language, your culture. uh, It's how you're perceived because of your gender or your sexual orientation or your ethnicity. Or like the fact that you need oxygen to keep yourself alive. But these things that constitute your unfreedom are also what make you you. Um, also, they are the enabling medium through which you can fulfill your life. Right? You cannot be without them, right? You're fully dependent on this. Um, so, the Huaynan uh, tells us that we are in the cage as much as we are the cage, right? And um, if that's so, then the best that we can do is to give up our self centeredness our individualism, and all kinds of fixed and absolute values, and to adapt and shift along with things, recontextualizing and readjusting relations into positive ones as we move along. Thank you so
0: much. I have two primer listeners. This chapter is actually my favorite chapter, just because I can... It suddenly opened up a kind of a whole slew of possibilities for me to imagine the world as my my playground, so I can be playful with whatever previously I considered as things like out of my control is on freedom. But now, change of mindset is just conditions of possibilities. Let me see what what I can do with all these given conditions, what I can do, you know, to, you know, change the, the world a little bit and change myself in the process. So thank you for um, writing this amazing book. We've taken a lot of your time now. Is there anything else in the book that we didn't have time to discuss? Because like we only have one hour and your book is really long. Um, you know, the things that we didn't have time to talk, but you'd like to highlight for listeners and future readers.
1: Well, I think, I think I've been speaking for a long time, right? So I'll just say that I hope that readers uh, enjoy the book if they... Just to pick it up and read it. Um, uh, Perhaps just to say that it's a book that is uh, fully based on the reconstruction of an ancient classical philosophy of action. But at the same time, I think that it has a lot to teach us and it has a lot to tell us uh, for us today, right? For us to learn from it today. So it has a very contemporary focus, even though it's based on those classical materials. And I think, uh, uh, I hope that something that the book does well is to challenge also that dichotomy between classical and contemporary.
0: Thank you so much. Um, I also want to prime my listeners that I read this book. I, oh, wait, Mercedes also wrote a book on Eon, right, called interwoven Beings. We are interwoven beings. And I taught it in my class and the response has been just overwhelmingly positive so many of the kind of translations the stories especially um i think it's transit story right if i mark my arm turned into a sling i'll just use it to short a um, you know to short a bird or get eaten them or something so many of the stories the translations actually can be used if you are teaching chinese philosophy chinese religions or just ancient china Okay, so that's enough of me talking. Our last question, Mercedes. Before we part of our ways, I'd like to ask one last traditional New Books Network question. What are you working on? What keeps you busy? Other <laughs> than your daughter?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, for sure. But I, I'm working on ebook, really, um, an ebook on agency, which is sort of a spin off from adapting. Um, so you see how in adapting, I focused on reconstructing this uh, philosophy of action, right? So if we think about the co-action paradigm, we, I focused on the normative claim, right? Of what humans have to do, right? If they want to act with efficacy. Um, so in this new book, I'm taking a step back and I'm looking more carefully at the two prior claims in the co-action paradigm. So looking more carefully at the collective constitution of agency. So to provide an in-depth analysis of the metaphysics of agency. And I'm having so much fun writing this book because it's very multidisciplinary and very multicultural. It's strongly based in insights from classical Chinese philosophy and also material culture and praxis. But at the same time, I'm also using contemporary Anglo-European philosophy and sociology, anthropology and art and I'm putting all these things together and playing with them with that playful spirit um, trying to co-create uh, a new way of looking at an agency that I think is going to be relevant for us today and um, like I said before, not only at the personal level of efficacy and self-understanding but also uh, with very relevant social political implications.
0: Thank you um, um... Mercedes, for this uh, for your time here, for this amazing book, and for sharing your insights and uh, for that forgettable metaphors that we have to process further in the long-term. So I'm looking forward to reading your new book soon.
1: Thank you so much, Jessica, for having me. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. <music>